Listen to the word of God. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, or it, state, it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So reads the word of God. As I said a moment ago, we're beginning a new eight-part series this morning. And that will be as uniquely preached, I would say, as it is uniquely needed. It will be as uniquely preached as uniquely needed. I'll focus first on the need and then I'll make a comment about the preaching. Church can feel like a pretty familiar word to us. Pretty familiar concept. Pretty familiar entity, the church. Pretty familiar institution. Even an unchurched person might venture a definition of what the church is. They might say with apparent insight something like this. Church is a place where people who believe similarly about God gather to pursue and practice their beliefs. We wouldn't quarrel with that necessarily, would we? Except that it's dead wrong. That wasn't in my notes. You got that one for free, right? <laughs> it's wrong simply because it focuses on the people who've gathered and on what they're doing and misses entirely what it is that sets them apart is the church. 
So it could sound insightful to say church is a place where people who believe similarly about God gather to pursue and practice their beliefs. And as that statement is made, the emphasis can vary from one part of that definition to another. It can vary between the place where these people meet to the specifics of the similarity in their beliefs to the, the nature of their practices, the rituals of their pursuit of their beliefs in God. They can emphasize all those different things, but it's all on the human level. In any case, these days, when a definition like that is used, by and large, it can seem virtually irrelevant, somewhere between there and entirely unimportant to most of humanity, which of those emphases is in view? It just doesn't really matter to most of the world. And far too often, that's not an uninformed assessment. The people who make it have personally tried the church and found it to be irrelevant and unhelpful to them with regard to the reasons why they were considering church in the first place. There's a lot of that in our world these days, isn't there? You hear it. They come to church, such people, and they don't understand what they're seeing. And the, the explanations that they hear are stated in ways that, that they can't follow or in words that they don't understand and never use and common language the help that they're offered just doesn't seem to match exactly the need that they're feeling and worse the gap between their question and the answer or make those plural the gap between their questions and the answers just seem to keep getting wider and wider these days We're not going to spend our time talking about the negative. We're going to just say that considering what the church actually is, according to Scripture, what it's called to be in the Word of God, not only could impressions like these not be more wrong, they couldn't be more tragic. But this world's misunderstanding of church, important as it is to grasp that and to understand aspects of it, this world's misunderstanding of church can only be of secondary importance to us. Do you know why? Hopefully you know why immediately. It's because the only hope of making any difference in the world is to keep our eye on the matter of primary importance, Namely, how the church, how true Christ followers understand the church themselves. If we don't understand it, the world doesn't have a chance. Do we really know what the church is? Do we really know what it's supposed to be? Do we really know how we fit into it? Do we know how it becomes relevant and helpful in this present world? 
in the lives of people who are struggling with those very categories in their personal lives. My friends, if the church doesn't know that with clarity, the world will never find its answers here. The importance of a series like this one is immense. We need to pause and reflect on the answer to that question. What is of primary importance? We need to grasp why it is that regardless of any perception, there is absolutely nothing irrelevant or unhelpful about the true church. Nor could there ever be. We need to discover what it is about the church that makes that answer true and reliably true. We need to remind ourselves of how it is and why it is that Jesus could say to Peter, for instance, and to us all through him, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If you want to put it in fancy theological terms, we need to strengthen our practical ecclesiology. We need to strengthen our experiential understanding, there's the practical part, our experiential understanding of the doctrine of the church. You might hear that word a number of times over the course of this series, ecclesiology. It's just anchored into the, the Greek word church, ecclesia, a word on the church. Ecclesia Lagos, ecclesiology. We need to strengthen our practical ecclesiology, our experiential understanding of the doctrine of the church and how we live in it. Such that we not only grasp intellectually what the church is, but know that to be true in real life. We could have an understanding of the church, but if that doesn't transition into real life, our real life, between Sundays, it won't do any good. So we not only need to grasp intellectually what the church is, but we need to know that to be true in real life, in the real world. Building the church is not just pretty central to what God is doing in this world, it is the centerpiece of what God is doing in this world currently. He sent the second person of the Trinity to establish the church, and he sent the third person of the Trinity to sustain the church. That's what God is doing in the world today. It's fulfilling Jesus' words. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's assembling his people. He's unifying a body of Christ to continue Jesus' work in this world. He's populating the household of God, even erecting a temple of God, the place where God lives among us. It's not in Jerusalem any longer, nor will it be. It's right here. Living stones assembled together into the place in which God dwells by His Spirit. Ephesians 2. Yet at the same time, He's shepherding His people like a flock. 
We have these glorious descriptions of who we are, pure and radiant bride, living stones assembling into the temple, and sheep who wander and stumble and are stupid and get themselves in all kinds of trouble. We're living in the realm of Christ and in the realm of Adam all at the same time, just as we've understood from Romans. We've got categories now for that. But this is also true. We're being shepherded as God's people like a flock of sheep, but he's building us together into a pillar and buttress of the truth, upholding the truth in a world that seeks to tear down truth so that they can live according to their own definition of truth. It's the church that stands in the way there. He's enculturating his people as citizens of heaven here and now. He's purifying a bride for his son to whom his son will be united for all eternity. Building the church is God's priority in this world and we need to know that. We need to embrace it we need to remember it. We need to live it. Or this unique entity will always look irrelevant and unhelpful to the world that's around us. Well, there's the unique need that we're addressing in this series. But I also said that this series will be uniquely preached. You have heard me say this before, but you will hear me say it again and again. I can't tell you what a joy it is to me personally to be preaching this series alongside each one of our elders here at Grace Church. I'm nearing 37 years in pastoral ministry and I've never had this privilege before of each of the elders standing in the pulpit of proclaiming one installment in this series. There'll be eight of them. There's seven elders. I'm going to do the opening and the closing. We're going to get to hear from our elders instruction from the Word of God on the nature of the church and to me, that is one of those joyful manifestations that God is at work among us. So I just wanted to point it out so that you can all enjoy that along with me. And uh, please keep us in prayer as we go into this series. We're not yet in the outline. I'll let you know when we are. But let's transition toward the text at this point, all right? Rather than just creating an understanding of the nature of the problem, in our study of Romans, we heard God's call in Romans 12, verse 3, not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God assigned. Do you remember that text? In short, it's telling us that our self-understanding, each of us personally, our self-understanding should grow out of our identity in Christ. The primary thing that we know and understand about ourselves, how we live and work in this world, what we take with us into the workplace, what we bring home with us to our families, what we do in our neighborhoods, our self-understanding should grow out of our identity in Christ, specifically our gifting and how that fits in with the gifting of other believers in the church. It's the most important thing about us. And all of that toward fulfilling his mission. That's a pretty stunning idea. Agreed? That humility would have us understanding ourselves properly according to the role that we play in the family of God. 
the body of Christ, the church. Today's text puts a similarly stunning idea before us, but from a bit different angle, almost an opposite angle, really. It's telling us how our relationship with Christ reveals the essence of who we are on a far deeper level than we can usually perceive on our own. So Paul is telling us, understand yourself as you plug in to the church. That's Romans 12. And what Peter is saying here is letting us know who we are that we could tend to forget about in this world. Part of the reason why we forget about what the church is and therefore don't represent it very well to this world around us. That's what Peter is addressing. It's telling us how our relationship with Christ reveals the essence of who we are on a far deeper level than we can perceive on our own. When we come to faith in Christ, each of us, it may or may not be a dramatic sort of discernibly life-altering change. For some of you, it surely was. For others, when you're asked, when did you come to saving faith? It's like, wow, I honestly don't know. Sometimes I was raised in a Christian home. I, I, I was learning the truths of the gospel all along. At some point, I transitioned from death unto life. There was this event, and there was that event, and there was this event, and I'm not sure which one of them it was, but at some point along the way, I came to an understanding of my sin, embraced the sacrifice of Christ to cleanse me and restore me into relationship with the Father, and I walk with God, trusting and believing these days. That's how others talk about it. You might wonder how I can talk about it with such uh, extended eloquence, right? That's my own story, for one. Different ones of us experience the initiation of new life differently. And no one response is better than the other. They just differ. And they differ often as widely as our personalities and our personal history differ from one another. But due to those very sorts of differences, it becomes important, really important, to understand exactly what does change about us as we accept Christ as Savior. What difference is made if we don't have one of those dramatic, striking, life-altering, course-correcting experiences, do we lack a clear understanding of who we are in Christ? It becomes very important to understand who we are and what actually makes us different and that's important so that our feelings don't distort what's happened to us, either so-called positively, more dramatic than anybody else's, and so my confidence is in the drama of my story, or negatively. I didn't see a whole lot of change, so maybe there's never been any. It becomes very important to understand what it is, and Peter does a great job of that right here, of addressing this issue in people who've been scattered away from their homeland due to persecution and are therefore in a place of particular vulnerability when it comes to having a sense of confidence in their standing before God. He's come to a place in his letter where he's affirming the core identity as the church and particularly these people's core identity as the church as a people for God's own possession. There's the language of verse 9. 
And then how that should show itself in this world. What difference that should make in how they live. And what difference it should make even in their current circumstances as the scattered church. Unsettled, unsettling, away from home, fleeing hardship. Yet none of that affects their identity as the church or their mission as the church. We'll encounter several descriptions along the way in our text this morning on our way to our primary one of a people for God. But there's one thing I want you to note before we start into the outline, and then we will, I promise you, start into the outline. Notice that each one of these descriptors that's present in verse 9 is an image of plurality. It's a collective description. It's a plural unity. A singularity made up of multiple parts, each one. It's a group identity. Even when scattered, Peter is emphasizing, God's people, the church, is one unified whole. They're the people of God. So let's ask this text these two questions. And let's notice how the answer has that quality to it, a plural unity, But also, just for the sake of understanding Peter's letter well, let's also recognize that he's actually transitioning between verse 10 and verse 11 from the first half of his letter to the second. It's a pretty big transition. So we're like picking up the last two verses before the end of the first portion of Peter's letter and the first two verses that begin the second portion. That division is a whole lot clearer, more familiar with it in Paul's letters, how he moves in the center of the letter from from theology to practice. Well, Peter is transitioning similarly from verses 9 and 10 into verses 11 and 12. So it forms sort of a hinged transition, and there's some benefit in doing it that way, but we should note it as we get started. Now, the questions that are listed there in your bulletin. What is the core identity of the church? And then what is the core activity of the church? And we want to answer each of these two briefly, succinctly, directly, and hopefully helpfully. So we can begin in this next eight weeks understanding who we are as the church. What is the core identity of the church? Peter writes to his people that Turning it to second person. By virtue of your union with Christ, church, verse 9, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for God's own possession. If this description appeared without context, we would be confident that he's talking about Israel. God's old covenant people. In fact, that would be true of most references to God's people in this letter from Peter. And surely Peter crafted it to sound just that way. That's intentional on Peter's part. Emphasizing at least some relationship between these two groups of Israel and the church. But even more, the similarity of God's action toward each of them in calling them to himself. 
Peter is emphasizing that as he talks to the scattered church. If we hadn't just finished a trek through Romans in which we looked at that, it's a pretty significant depth. I'd need to spend more time on this particularly important point. But since we saw this connection spelled out in such detail in Paul's letters, I'm just going to leave it there and affirm to you that Peter surely seems to agree wholeheartedly with Paul in the way that he's talking about the unity, despite some diversity, between these two entities. And we'll state in summary that just as the church that's been scattered by persecution echoes Israel's experience in captivity, such that Peter addressed them at the very start of this letter, chapter 1, verse 1, as elect exiles. Just as the church that's been scattered by persecution echoes Israel's experience in captivity, so here the church that's been called by God into saving relationship with himself echoes Israel's experience as his chosen race. You might say they're one new man made out of the two. One new nation. Except for the fact that we get to that word in just a couple of descriptors. They are a royal priesthood. That's what Israel was called by God in Exodus 19 just before Moses went up the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. In fact, Exodus 19 clearly stands behind Peter's descriptions here because a kingdom of priests is also explicitly in that, um, that list. Israel was God's chosen race. They are his royal priesthood. They are a holy nation. And now we're hearing that that's exactly what the church is. A holy nation. Meaning neither ethnicity nor geography establish it. But submission to King Jesus, who in, back in verse 6 was called that chosen and precious cornerstone. So we're a chosen race, one new man. We are a royal priesthood representing God to people and people to God. We are a holy nation under the king who's been revealed. And that leads to the core description for this morning, a people for his own possession. Does that sound familiar? That completes the promise of the new covenant in Ezekiel 36. I will be your God, you will be my people. Peter is telling his people that they belong to God. They are God's own possession, purchased at great price, Paul wrote to the Corinthians. He called them out of their stumbling disobedience, verse 8, and made them his own. It wasn't always so. They weren't always his people. Leaning hard into the prophet Isaiah, multiple quotes and allusions from Hosea 1, Peter reminds the church that they're God's people by an act of God's sovereign mercy. They're God's people because he reached out to them in their, his grace and mercy and claimed them as his own using the Old Testament prophet to make that case. 
Peter reminds them that they're God's people by an act of God's sovereign mercy. And just as in other places where that same point is made, for instance, 2 Corinthians 6, Isaiah 43 comes into view here. Isaiah 43, verse 20. I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. In other words, I do miracles for them. The people whom I formed for myself, that they may declare my praise. There's the point of particular resonance with this text. The people whom I formed for myself, that they may declare my praise. Here, the purpose of the church's honored status, that word honored used in verse 7, is just what it was for Israel there in Isaiah 43. In almost the same language, we see verse 9 completing talking about the mission of the church, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. Praise God. Amen? We are called by God to be his people so that we can proclaim the excellencies of him who called us all to the praise of his glory. That's who we are. That's our identity. That's what we're about in this world. That's one of the best explanations of why we differ so much from one another in personality and gifting and history and so many other things. All of that sends us out into different parts of this world where we can do this. And we come in here and enjoy that diversity because we think, who is God that he could unite this collection of people? I mean, look around. You've got some strange neighbors in this room. (laughs) He can unite this people for that purpose? To show his glory through us in this world? That leads us right into our second question. What is the core activity of the church? And these two verses of 11 and 12, as I mentioned, move us into the second part of Peter's letter. The nature of their salvation, their identity in Christ is part one. A practical instruction on living well under authority and under suffering particularly Make up part two. So Peter begins by pointing out some challenges that they can expect to face as they understand who they are and begin putting it into practice. They're exiles, for one, sojourners, not necessarily welcome in this land, not appreciated. In fact, it's Peter who tells us that If you're a believer, just expect persecution. It's going to happen. That's the group he's writing to. They're exiles and sojourners away from their homeland in hostile territory. These aren't happy words. But as we said, they're just as true of the church as they were of Israel. J.D. Kelly made a wonderful statement in his commentary that's very much like the one we just stated together a couple of moments ago. 
He wrote, just as the Jews of the dispersion were a scattered people, cut off from their country, but with the prospect of ultimately going back, so Christians are bound, wherever they are, to be transitory sojourners yearning for home. The old spiritual, this world is not my home, I'm just passing through. My treasure's laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Do you know that one? Man, what a great statement that is. So that's the experience of the church. We long for home from the depths of our hearts. Yet, as we've already seen, as we saw in Romans, deep within our hearts, also lay embedded passions, desires of different sorts that, that wage war with our souls, that wage war in opposition to the defining morality of our homeland. That's our experience as well. And Peter challenged these folks not to cave in to those desires, not to give in to that for the sake of the gospel, not to forget who they are and why they're here. My friends, there are many among us who are seeking to slay the dragon in their own heart, seeking to say no to sin that persistently seems to entangle feeling very alone in that battle, feeling isolated. And what Peter is opening up for us here is that that battle is never fought alone. You're part of a body who understands that. Each one experiencing it in their own way and collectively together calling one another to the very thing that Peter is calling this body to here. Help one another in that. And trust me, you find greater strength in saying no to that which tempts you when you begin thinking about your relationships in the body of Christ. About the fact that you're not your own. You're bought with a price and you were saved into a community of believers. And it helps. It helps immensely at such times. And there are any number of folks in this room right now who could give testimony to that very thing. Peter challenged them not to cave in to those desires that lay deep in their heart, that run contrary to the morality of their homeland, not to forget who they are, not to forget why they're here. When choices were present, he pressed them to choose holiness. It's a, language, it's a word that Peter uses. When temptations arise, he called them to resist. Verse 11, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that, we might summarize, so that you can fulfill your calling. So you can be who you are or who God made you to be. You can fill your role with the church. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. As God's chosen people, as the people of God, 
you're able to do that. Many of you needed to hear that this morning. As the people of God, you're, you're able to do this. It's not done in your own strength. It's done because the Spirit of God is upon you. You've trusted Christ as Savior, and His Spirit is now in you working to sharpen the hunger of your desire to walk, to, to walk in obedience to His Word, to say no to sin and yes to righteousness, to enter in with your whole heart to the relationship within the body of Christ and experience the fullness of salvation that's present in the fellowship that you enjoy with your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the church. As God's chosen people, you're able to do this. Peter opened his second letter right from the start saying that God's divine power has granted to you all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of Him who called you to His own glory and excellence, all that you need is there in Christ to do just this that Peter is talking about. Being God's people means living His presence in this world, making Him visible in this world. I love 1 John 4. God is invisible, but man, when His people start acting in the way that He enables by His Spirit, He becomes visible in them. We make God visible in this world. There's the church. God seems invisible to this world. Where do you suppose the problem lies? with the ones who are called and equipped by God to make him visible. Being God's people means bearing kingdom fruit. It means expanding his reign. It means bringing him glory. It means living and proclaiming the gospel with authenticity and passion. That's the way we say it in our Grace Church vision prayer. It means fulfilling the mission for which he called us. And doing so as our unrivaled, highest priority. There's the church. We're on mission together. So what is our hope of success in this calling? <laughs> What's our hope of success in this calling? We just mentioned from Second Peter 1 that all that we need for it is available to us. But what's our hope of success? I actually want you to take a moment and turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 5, page 1031 in your pew Bible. I'm going to pick up essentially in verse 8 of chapter 5. What we read there is, when the Lamb had taken the scroll, scroll of God's purposes in heaven and earth, when the Lamb had taken the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, the four living creatures here and the 24 elders fell down before him, each holding a harp, I love this part, a golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. The four living creatures holding our prayers in a golden bowl before the throne of God. Implication, they're being answered right here. Verse 9, And they, these beings, sang a new song, the song of salvation, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. 
from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Do you hear why we go to that passage? Do you hear the parallel language? Tribe here, verse 9, is chosen race. Kingdom of priests is a royal priesthood. Nation is a holy nation. People, those purchased for God, are a people for his own possession. John is talking in the very same categories that Peter did, identifying the church. And in that setting, as the Lamb is introduced as worthy of worship, along with him who is seated on the throne... The new song of the four living creatures and the 24 elders announces his worthiness. And that his worthiness is due first and foremost in this context to the fact that he built his church. That's what he's describing. To the fact that he's ransomed people for God at the price of his own blood. That's what makes the Lamb worthy of worship before the throne of God in his first appearance in the book of Revelation. The one detail that John makes explicit here that Peter just left implicit is that the people of God isn't just one new holy nation. It's one new nation made up of people from all nations. It's the church. So in Christ, it's not just that our identity is established for all eternity in fulfillment of his promised new covenant. The work we're called to do, the work we're equipped to do by him, will get done. We can turn to the end of the story and see that it is. It's accomplished. It will get done such that some from every single nation and ethnicity and language group on this planet throughout all human history will be present before the throne giving him glory from the day of his return and on forevermore. My friends, that is our calling. Is there anything irrelevant and unhelpful about that? That is our calling. That's what we do as the church. And the very most captivating description of worship in the pages of God's Word says that the fulfillment of that work has been done. That's who we are, the church, the people of God. That's our identity and our activity. It's our mission. And that's what we're strengthening and stoking and celebrating and fellowshipping in and urging one another to be faithful to as we gather here week by week. That's what we're doing. That's who we are. This is the church. The people of God. Are we in? Amen. We're in. That's part one. God help us as we move through different metaphors now from Scripture talking about this amazing reality, the church. But for now, we need to stop. We need to pause, actually, and 
reflect on the price that was paid to make us the church through the finished work of Christ, remembering his body and blood. Let's pray together as they do. Communion servers and musicians, please join me at the front. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for this amazing entity of the church. Thank you, Lord God, for our opportunity to look at it together. And I pray that it might never be the case in any place in this area where representatives of Grace Church of DuPage are present, that ever again we would lack an understanding, an intellectual grasp, and a, a practical engagement with what the church is and how essential it is to your program that you are building the church and that the church is continuing the work of Christ in this world. Well, Father, grip our hearts with these truths from your word, I pray, over the weeks ahead and glorify yourself among us that we might even be an encouragement to other churches, to brothers and sisters in Christ who weary and laden perhaps have forgotten themselves and what they're about. Help us to be an encouragement, empowered by your spirit to live in the truth of your word. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.